Welcome to Book Talk for Book Talk, a literary podcast where we've been deep diving into your favorite novels. This is Jack. And I'm Amy. And our listeners love to share their thoughts and theories via email and voicemail, so we're sharing them via our weekly mini-episodes. The views expressed by the hosts and listeners are entirely their own and in no way represent the thoughts or intentions of the original author. This podcast is a discussion shared to spark thought and conversation on the characters and themes of this novel. Spoilers may be discussed with or without warning. Explicit language, as well as themes of sex, violence, abuse, death, and depression will recur throughout this podcast. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome to our mini episode series. During each mini, we'll be reading listener feedback and theories, as well as discussing all things Sarah J. Mass, including her Akatar, Crescent City, and Throne of Glass series. This message is from Shannon. I'm currently painting a wall to look like Floris and had to stop to get on the computer, painted fingers and all. Okay, you guys talked a lot about how Feyre's lack of literacy comes up a lot in Akatar, which is the first book and that when we get to really know who Feyre is and what she's like. You've also talked a lot about Nesta and how Feyre compares herself to her sister and talks a lot about her. I just finished Silver Flames, and in that book, where we get to know Nesta, it is the total opposite on literacy. The whole book is about Nesta and how she loves to read. The library in the house, the way the house gives her books, Cass gives her books, all about reading. I find it interesting in these two characters how their literacy is really focused on as part of who they are, how their mother made sure Nesta could read, but it wasn't important for Feyre to learn. I can't imagine that it wasn't purposefully done, seeing how much it gives light to their different backgrounds. She's making a wall like Valaris. That's cool. That's really cool. That is cool. And then it sounds like finger paints. Like, that's awesome. No, I, I, no, I, would, I wouldn't assume that. <laughs> I, mean, I know that that's not what happened. But in my mind, she did finger painting of Valaris on her, her wall. That's hilarious. Anyway, back to this, which in my mind was very well done. So I'm not playing you down, Shannon. That's interesting, though, where it's like both daughters are very much defined by their ability to read or lack thereof. Yeah. And it's so obvious, but I never really thought about that. Yeah. How their ability or lack thereof is huge. Well, at least for Favorite, it's a huge plot point. For Mm -hmm. Nesta, it's more just a huge personality trait that we see a lot of in Silver Flames. Yeah, I mean, I, I would argue maybe no. Maybe in Silver Flames, a huge plot point is the fact that she reads because that's how her and the house start to get along. Yeah, that's fair. That's fair. And it's part of her healing journey. Yeah. I would say, though, like, because we don't really see this with Elaine. Granted, we don't really have Elaine's story, but how much is it based off of their upbringing versus it's a show of how opposite Farah and Nesta are? Nesta had that fancy upbringing, mm-hmm. schooling and mm-hmm. everything. Farah doesn't really remember that. There's a TikTok I saw, and I'm not going to do it justice at all, but in Throne of Glass, the main character there, she's very into reading. Like, that's her thing. She's just like, I love to read. And then Farah's really into painting. And then the person was like, how does SJM then make her third heroine with Crescent City? Like, you know, you have painting, you have reading. How is she? How are we going to make her relatable and her interest? And then it's like, let's do drugs. Yeah. <laughs> really love alcohol. Yeah. I got it. (laughs) Right. But yeah, I do enjoy that note. And I want to see the painting of your living room once you're done. Yes, Shannon, please share a picture with us. I will say when we get Elaine's story, I'm going to be interested to see what SJM focuses on for Elaine. Mm -hmm. 
Because in theory, Elaine received the same upbringing as Nesta, but it's not necessarily such a divisive trait between her and Feyre. We haven't figured out who Elaine is. Right. You know, we see a lot of similarities between Elaine and Farah, and we're we're grasping at those similarities, you know, like some of them mm-hmm. are obvious. Some of them are like, oh, you're making us reach for it. But it's going to be a sneaky, sneaky thing. Yeah. What SJM decides to do for the listener. Amy's using my laptop to read today because she didn't have her laptop, uh, my iPad. her iPad. And all I see is sexy chicken lingerie sticker staring at me. That's your sign to go to our Etsy shop to uh, <laughs> get a sexy chicken lingerie sticker. This next message is from Sarah. Hi, Amy, Jack. I was on your live stream tonight and had to come share the Elaine represents the mother theory because it's just too good. I honestly can't unsee it every time I read about Elaine. And then Sarah has a link to this theory from Tumblr and it adds to the theory. So here's a theory. If Nesta represents the cauldron, Elaine is the mother and Farah represents the Fae, as she was made by all seven high lords and would complete the trinity. I always found it odd the dresser they shared in childhood has Elaine as the first drawer, though she's not the firstborn. Holy shit. Sorry, that was a... I never realized that. Yeah, no, it's... uh, I was really, really impressed with this when I read it, so keep reading. I just had to take a moment to pause of, whoa, okay. Yeah, yeah. SJM brings the dresser up a lot. That is true. And even as Elaine bakes a cake, food is power, to symbolize it in Frost and Starlight. Elaine at the top is the all-powerful mother, gives life. Nesta is the cauldron, powerful, but useless without its support. They had to separate the cauldron's three legs to nullify it, and it took three people to support her through silver flames. That's such a good point. Farah is the fae, the being that ties the earth or realm, together. Farah is the foundation because without Faye, the story of the mother and cauldron cease to exist. I hope you enjoyed the theory as much as I do because it's basically fact in my head now. Can't wait to hear your theories. I need to go and read the Tumblr post because I haven't, but just Sarah's theory Mm add-on alone Mm -hmm. feels mind-blowing to me. Yeah, like this, just this part where it's like, you know, why was Elaine put first? Yeah. And we we don't know. Yeah. And I think I responded to Sarah. My assumption always was that Elaine being first before Nesta, though Nesta is firstborn, is Nesta showing deference to Elaine. You mean Farrah showing deference to Elaine? Because Farrah is the one who painted them. Yeah. But what if they already had chosen the drawers? So like Elaine's clothing has always been in the top drawer. Okay. Okay. Gotcha. Um, And Farrah just painted based on where people's stuff was. Okay. Nesta gives Elaine the first drawer because Nesta's always prioritized Elaine. Mm -hmm. And that was my interpretation of why Elaine has the first drawer. Yeah. But it would be very, very interesting if it's symbolic of their powers or I don't know. What's also I love about that is I know with Nesta, her power, like at the end of Silver Flames, she hears a voice and people assume it's the mother. So I always associated the mother connection with Nesta as well. Granted, Mm -hmm. you know, Mm -hmm. Cauldron is much more associated with her, but she has a clear connection to the mother, too. Right, right. I know that people have also talked about like the three-faced goddess. Yeah. And mother maiden crone. And so I think in that case, though, people associate the crone with Nesta the maiden with Elaine, and the mother with Feyre. Okay, so I brought up the theory. Okay. Should I just go through it? Yeah, let's do it. All right. So this is from a Tumblr post from Echo T Z Z Z. 
Elaine, the mother. This could be a crack theory, but regardless, I want to share about what I feel about this matter. And I'm sorry if it really sounds off or unjustifiable. Again, this is just a theory from my own interpretation. I truly feel that somehow Elaine has some sort of connection with the mother, but not like how Nesta was. We know about the cauldron where it determines fate and the eddies of its swirling fluid, but what about the mother? Does it truly exist and have her own power or just an idea to the fairies? So my theory is that what if the cauldron chose Elaine as the representative of the mother? What if she was the one that whispered to Nesta and prevented all of her power being taken away by the cauldron? Here's a quote. Her gaze shifted to the carved wooden rose she placed upon the mantle, half hidden in the shadows, behind a figurine of a supple body female, her uprising arms clasping a full moon between them, some sort of primal goddess, perhaps even the mother herself. Nesta hadn't let herself dwell on why she felt the need to set the rose there, why she hadn't just thrown it in a drawer. I'm guessing that's probably when they went back to their old cottage. Yeah, I think so. I'm going to choose that. I believe the rose will represent Elaine's journey in the next book, but is it coincidence that the rose, even though hidden in the shadows, were placed by the mother figure? Nesta even felt the need to put the rose in that position. Is this the foreshadowing SJM used that the shadows would represent Elaine's love life and mother as the arc of her power? We don't know what are the whole scope of powers that Elaine possesses and how powerful she is, but the thought that the cauldron itself blessed her with such gift must have some sort of meaning and reasoning, and not just because it found Elaine to be lovely. There must be something beyond that. And then it goes into a lot more examples. I think that's good for now. But we're good. Yeah, I don't want to go into more. I get the gist. Yeah, I do too. In Wings and Ruin, later on, we're going to see that the cauldron purrs when it sees Elaine because it's not necessarily sentient, but it responds to her. Oh, it likes her. Yeah. And it's interesting to think that what if the cauldron is like representative of a lover of the mother, like a companion of the mother? Like the cauldron was the father to the mother. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I like that. So and that could be why the cauldron favors her if she's connected to the mother. Yeah. I'm excited. I'm excited for Elaine's story. I am too. I mean, I love how much SJM really left out. Yeah. Ugh. It just makes me salivate for more. Right? Like, she has enough clues that it could easily be like, oh, it's just coincidence. Mm -hmm. Or we can dive back into it. She did a great job setting up Elaine's story. Yeah. I am so desperate for this story. (sighs) More than I want more story. Oh, absolutely. (laughs) This message is from Amy, and not myself, a different Amy. Lies. <laughs> you, you emailed the podcast. <laughs> so we know that there's a theme of cleanliness throughout the series, especially in Mist and Fury, as noted when Amran and Reese use magic to clean Feyre, but it isn't a true clean. I feel that Feyre's guilt as we begin Mist and Fury, which we witness with her aversion to being seen as pure or dressed in white and the feeling of blood coating her hands constantly— also shows her struggle with being unclean physically and morally. This aversion to dirt is mirrored with Reese. He picks invisible lint from his clothes. At first, I thought this was part of his High Lord mask. However, the lint being invisible leads me to believe that only he can see it. It's as if Reese also sees himself as dirty or unclean or impure after his time under the mountain in which he was sexually assaulted. 
by itself, I think this is a beautiful metaphor and excellent mirroring of the characters to show their equality. When I thought about the first time they both feel and accept the mating bond and come together physically, it's in the cabin when they're surrounded by paint. Up until this point, both have shown obvious distaste with being dirty. This time, they almost seem to revel in their bodies being marked. And it's not just a little paint. It's streaked through their hair and ends up covering the sheets when they eventually move to the bedroom. Following their coupling, they take turns to clean one another in total harmonious bliss, but the paint is described more as a sign of where they have touched each other rather than dirt that must be cleaned. I, well, okay, first of all, Amy, I love the point about Reese picking off invisible lint. I love that so much. It's such a great call out because it's characteristic of him, right? Everyone talks about him picking lint off of mm-hmm. himself, but it, it seems cartoonish rather than having purpose. Yeah. But now this idea that he's picking it off of him because he feels dirty all the time. This is a literary analysis, people. Like, That's this amazing. Is, like, that is, I love this so much because, like, that is what a literary analysis is. It's like, hey, here's a thing and here's why it could be. Is it? I don't know. But this is how I'm interpreting it. And yeah. it's amazing. And that was yeah. such a great connection. I had not even thought about it yeah. at all. And it that's such a well thought out point. Yes. And it just makes me want to be better with my own characters. Like if I yeah. give them little ticks, the yeah. ticks have to be grounded in purpose. Yeah. And I don't know if SJM wrote it with purpose for that. It's just like I think it's always kind of done with this, you know, I'm better than you. You're right. all just kind of specks of like you're the lint on my jacket. Right, right. But, you know, you have this added layer of of all of that. But that's where it comes into like sometimes good writing is just innate and you can't right. always do, do it. But I agree with you. I'm writing a list of ticks in my head now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I also love the idea that like they both like to be clean. We talk a lot about yep. their journey of being clean and the fact that they come together in dirty, dirty paint. I want to expand on Amy's theory uh-huh. because when's the first time Pharaoh smiles for Reese? Oh, when she's underneath the stars and it's she gets like fla- face they both fatter. Get, yeah, they both get star goo on them. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, that's the beginning of their dismantling this idea of we must be clean. I'm mm-hmm. not clean enough. And they're coming together as dirty beings. Because mm-hmm. they feel like they both might be dirty and they're coming together in that form. And not even worried about what kind of UTI is going to come from the paint. Exactly. And... <laughs> And they learn to love each other as they are, yeah. as dirty beings. Yeah. It's beautiful. It's beautiful. Great job. Oh. Can I take credit? Can you be the Amy? Uh, can I be the Amy? It like, turns out I am the Amy. <laughs> I was the Amy the whole time. This next message is from Jess. I really love the interview with Gabriel Michael, who, if anyone doesn't know, plays Lucian in the graphic audio adaptation of Court of Thorns and Roses series. And if you haven't listened to that interview yet, please listen to it because Gabriel is phenomenal. And it was a life-changing moment for us. It was. We like Lucian because of Gabriel. Yes. I've been mulling over his interpretation of the mating bond as something that takes away agency and choice from those involved. I think he has a point as Nesta says in Akawar, that the mating bond is a fey idea, not a human one. And we know that SJM loves the human heart. Reese, Farrah, Cassian, and Nesta all fall in love with their mates before they've accepted or become fully aware of the mating bond. In contrast, Lucian and Elaine know of the bond right off the bat before any love or intimacy can develop. And I think it kind of dooms them. Sorry, Lucian stands. I have no skin in this game, just my interpretation. 
I have thoughts. I, I know you. I knew you would. I included this one just for you. <laughs> would you like to think the first? No, you go I ahead. get to think first? Thank you. Yeah, go ahead. Okay. I forgot what I was going to say. <laughs> no. Okay. So here is why I'm going to use your point, Jess, and show you why it is, in fact, why Elaine and Lucian will be. To your point, SJM has developed a pattern. You have two sisters who've met their mate counterparts as human. They were there when they turned. They fell in love first, but at the same time, like, you know, they fell in love and then they found out they were mates. You know, like they were kind of like always doomed to be together, not doomed, but like they were going to fall in love. There's been a lot of talk about, and Fair has been the one who's brought it up, of where's the choice? Why isn't there a choice? Why can't Elaine choose to not be with Lucian? And I think that SJM needed the third sister to be so different and have such a different path. So that it's not so copy paste. Mm-hmm. And Azriel would have been a copy paste, even though it's not her mate. But where I think it's going to be is that the differences, and I'll argue that Farah and Nesta didn't choose their mate because they fell in love with them in proximity. Like, yeah. You know, they found out they were mates after, but they didn't really choose it. Like they're they're with they're spending time with the person they're meant to be with. Of course you're gonna fall in love with them. Right. You know, like so there was no choice there. But Elaine's gonna be the one who makes the choice, and that's what's gonna make her separate and different. And I don't think it dooms them. I think it confirms them. I think it creates more resistance for them. Yeah. And I think that it's gonna create the more interesting love story. Even more interesting and then Elaine and Asriel. Yeah, I agree. And I don't want Elaine and Lucian to be together, but I do see how SJM could be setting up a very difficult love story for them that makes us fall in love with them. Yeah. And I mean, Asriel to me is such a red herring. It's so obvious. He's the third bat boy. She's the third sister. Like, Right. Of course, they've he, been f- flirting. And he even says it in his point of view in yeah. the Silver Flame secret chapter. Yeah, he's like, why can't I have one? Like, I want a sister. Right. Three sisters, three friends. It Collect just makes them sense. All. Yeah, like, let's go. And But, like, you know, I think people are like, they're setting them up together. And it's like, you're setting up the first act. That's all that is. Yeah. You're not setting them up together. Think about Mist and Fury, Farah and Reese. They're not set up together. Right. She's with someone else. Right. Think about with Silver Flames. Frost and Starlight essentially was like Cassian and Nestor no more. Right. It tore down everything we came to expect from Wings and Ruin. So they weren't together in the first act. Like, they're not the first act story. Right. Elaine and Azrael, they're two first act. You could argue, well, Grayson was Elaine's first act, but he's not who we see her interact with. We see her interact with Azrael. Well, I mean, it's the same way that, like... Tamlin was when I say first act I mean first act of the book like no yeah, yeah. I agree with you I'm yeah. agreeing with you because a lot of us are going to want Elaine with Azrael because of what we've seen of them when it comes to Elaine's story and that might be the first act mm-hmm. but that's not where it's going to end yeah it leaves it off so much of like they're going to pick up immediately after mm-hmm. now spoiler spoiler for SJM universe all that is a giant caveat because in the third Crescent City book I don't think we're going to get tons of character development from the Akatar team, but that then moves this whole Elaine and Asriel are set up for the first act vibe. Right. You know, so yeah. 
had the book series picked up immediately right after where Silver Flames left off, mm-hmm. it would have been like, there's no chance they stand a chance together. But I'd be curious with that third Crescent City book to see what Elaine and Azriel's side stories are, because we're not going to get their point of view. It's going to be interesting to see them through Bryce's eyes yeah, and how the two of them interact and how Bryce interprets it. Because it's just going to throw everybody for a fucking loop. Yeah. I mean, the only way if it like extra throws people for a loop is if we find out Azriel's mate is actually someone from this other world, which mm. I don't think it is. I don't think so either. No, but some people think it's Bryce. We're not those people. We are not those people. All the signs show that Hunt is her mate. Yeah. But you know what? Love messy drama. So whatever you want to do, SJM, I'm here yeah. for it. Just give me the angst. I want the angst. I want to hurt. Yeah, give me the angst, but not the angst of having to wait another two years. Yeah, that's fair. <laughs> that's not the angst I want. <laughs> Thank you for listening to this mini episode of Book Talk for Book Talk. We encourage you to rate and subscribe to our show on your preferred podcast listening platform. We would love to hear your thoughts based on today's conversation. You can submit your comments to our form at booktalkforbooktalk.com or via our Camflare voicemail system. Please visit booktalkforbooktalk.com for more information. You can also follow us on TikTok or Instagram at the handle booktalkforbooktalk. Bye!